Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Sometimes it seems so obvious that one might think that it does not need discussion, but it does. And I am talking about being competent to understand cultural sensitivities. The concept helps us to be better understood by others as much as it helps us understand others. And when it fails, major problems can develop. Gail Pricewise is the president of the Florida Center for Cultural Competence, and she very graciously joins us today to discuss this often inadequately underspoken or, shall we say, at least timely topic of this day and age. Thank you for being with us. Well, I'm happy to be here. What brought your attention to the fact that prejudices exist in the medical community? And I'm referring to a book that you wrote, which was quite interesting. Tell us a little bit of the story, your story, of how you got into this entire endeavor. Probably around 2002, or I think it was 2003, the Institute of Medicine released a report uh, called Unequal Treatment that talked about how certain racial or ethnic groups get better or worse care than others. And that got me interested in the whole concept of health disparities and cultural competence. Through the years, I had heard about a famous case, that of Willie Ramirez. And he's actually quite famous. He's cited all the time as being a terrible, terrible case in which an error in language translation or interpretation and an error in communication between the family and the healthcare providers led to a medical tragedy. And in this case, Willie was left quadriplegic. Give us a little bit brief summary of what the story was with Mr. Ramirez. Sure. Willie Ramirez in 1980 was an 18-year-old Cuban male, a handsome, athletic guy. One day, he had a hamburger. Now, it's kind of a funny story. He had a fast food hamburger. That evening, he had a terrible, terrible headache and fell down unconscious. And his Cuban family thought, see, that's what happens when you have a fast food hamburger. You fall down unconscious. Now, to those of of us outside of that story, it actually seems comical. It seems comical that the family would have thought that the cause of him falling down unconscious was a bad hamburger. He was rushed to the hospital by ambulance, and the family tried to explain that he was food poisoned. And in Spanish, the word food poisoned sounds like the word intoxicated. It's intoxicado. And it literally means that you have ingested something toxic to your system. That's how they express the concept of food poison. So they're explaining to the paramedic and later the emergency room physician that Willie was intoxicado. And in fact, one of the family members was overconfident in her ability to speak English, and she anglicized the word and said intoxicated. What were the paramedics and the emergency room physician to think? They assumed that the family was explaining that Willie was unconscious because he was intoxicated. It was clear that he had not taken an alcohol overdose. He didn't smell of alcohol, and it appeared that he had not been using alcohol. And they assumed that he had taken an intentional drug Willie was 18. He had a 15-year-old girlfriend. For those of you who have teenage girls, you may recall that they're a little self-absorbed. They talk and think about themselves a lot. So was Willie's 15-year-old girlfriend. So when they asked her if she knew anything about what had happened, she, the 15-year-old girlfriend, says, well, I'm not really his girlfriend anymore because, you know, we were fighting yesterday and we used to be boyfriend and girlfriend and we're not boyfriend and girlfriend anymore. Just like a regular teenager going off about something that was completely unrelated to the case. 
So because of this story, the emergency room physician told me that he assumed that Willie and his girlfriend had had an argument, and because of the argument, he had taken an intentional drug overdose with the intent to kill himself. So the treatment was to pump his stomach and basically to wait for him to wake up from his drug overdose. What really happened was that Willie had a intracerebellar bleed. I don't know whether it was an aneurysm or it was like a... But he was bleeding. He was bleeding and he had a gigantic hemorrhage. And they waited for 36 hours, waiting for him to wake up because they were all treating it as if it were a drug overdose. And then at one point, 36 hours after he was admitted to the hospital, he had a respiratory arrest. It was witnessed, thank goodness, by a physician that was there to evaluate him. So they intubated him and then he was sent to the only hospital in the area that had a CT scanner at the time, which was Baptist Hospital in Miami. He was rushed off to Baptist. They did the CT scan. They saw immediately that he had a gigantic hematoma. The neurosurgeon was called in to perform surgery. When he woke up, he was quadriplegic. The assumption was that because the surgery had been so delayed and the hematoma had been so large that it probably put pressure on his foramen magnum, that there was too much swelling around the foramen magnum and left him quadriplegic. The legal settlement, because there was, of course, a malpractice suit, was one of the largest in Florida's history. And it was basically settled because the neurosurgeon was asked whether Willie perhaps could have walked out of the hospital if he had been called in immediately when Willie had been admitted, and the neurosurgeon said, probably. So because of that, they settled, and through the years now, Will, this is 1980, so it's quite a, quite a number of years have passed. Willie has lived as a quadriplegic, and thankfully he's had enough money from the settlement so that he could live reasonably comfortably as a quadriplegic. He has enormous amounts of assistance, etc. He even went on to have a biological daughter. Looking back, most people involved in the case say that if the family had had an interpreter that could have explained to the physicians what the family was trying to communicate, if there had been a better sense of trust and communication between the provider and the family, they would have spent more time talking about the medical history and the correct diagnosis would have been made much sooner. It's a scary story. It's a terrifying story. And it makes people maybe afraid that they won't, they won't be understood if they go to an emergency room. I know that now there's a lot of discussion to require doctors and hospitals to have interpreters yes. if need be, but of course they're not always available and a lot of smaller facilities aren't going to have it and there, there are issues. So how did this then evolve into you becoming an activist, so to speak, in cultural competence? Personally, I've always been interested in people of different cultural backgrounds. I think probably at some some level in my heart, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. I love to learn about different cultures. And also, I'm always interested in people that are a little bit out of place, that feel like a little bit homesick and a little bit like they don't belong. There's something about that population that kind of pulls at my heartstrings a little bit. For me, I love to understand about different people's cultures. I want to be of help to them. In the Willie Ramirez case, was a breakdown in the process in the hospital? Well, so many bad things happened. To have something, have, have such a terrible outcome, it was really the result of so many bad things. When we talk about cultural competence, some of it seems to be more related to the term of prejudice. Yes. Here's the other thing that happened. At the point that I interviewed the emergency room physician and also the attending physician, it was already almost 30 years later. Both of them had been so injured 
personally by this experience that they remembered it quite clearly. So for one, both of them said that the fact that Willie was a Cuban working class young man and that his family was Cuban and working class, that that ended up having an impact on their sort of looking at the, the situation and saying, of course, he's a drug addict. And those are the problems that we hear about far too frequently in our society in a multitude of areas. And maybe I'm overstating it, but could we say that there was this prejudice that added to the entire situation? Without a doubt. I remember the emergency room physician saying to me something like, well, when you see an 18-year-old Cuban male, it kind of made sense to him that this was a drug overdose. It was also at a time when Miami Vice was a popular television program. And in fact, the media does a lot to foster and to support stereotypes. And in this case, there was a strong stereotype of Latinos being drug addicts and in particular Cubans being drug addicts. And so the, the story made sense to them. I will say that the other thing that was kind of interesting about it is that the attending physician was actually Bolivian. He spoke Spanish. And so when I found that out, I thought, wow, well, what's the, what's the intercultural issue here? And there is one. Which is what? It's an error to think that all Latinos are the same. They're not. They're as diverse as Americans. This fellow was a, a well-educated physician from Bolivia. He spoke a Spanish that he considered to be a very kind of high-class Spanish. He was also of mixed European and native blood, which is very common in Bolivia. The Cuban family were not very well-educated Cubans who were not used to seeing somebody with Native or American Indian blood as a professional. And so they were actually somewhat, I want to say, disdainful of him. They treated him with a certain amount of disrespect. He treated them with a certain amount of disrespect. He thought that their Spanish was kind of like a low-class Spanish, and he thought, oh, look at this lower-class Cuban family, and they thought about him, oh, look at this strange-looking physician who has kind of Native American features. There was prejudice on both sides. This opens doors that to, to so much to discuss. So what do we do about it? We know it's still an issue in our society today. We hear it almost daily. Yes. It's prejudice. Where does prejudice come from? What does prejudice serve psychologically? How does it serve someone to be prejudicial? Your thoughts, please. Sure. My work has really evolved to focus on this topic. A lot of the work that I do now is I run workshops that I call Managing Your Prejudices. And I start with the assertion that every human being has prejudices. And if you don't, you're not human. There's a lot of, a lot of kind of psychological or sociological research on people putting others into categories immediately upon looking at them. Oh, I know that kind of person based on what they look like. Oftentimes it's based on stereotypes, things that we see on, on television or in the movies or something your mother told you about that group of people. And we make a shortcut. We assume that everybody that looks like that category of person must be the same. It's the idea that those people are all the same. And in fact, in my classes, I tell people, I want you to recognize your prejudices, understand that it's part of the human condition, and that what's natural is for us to look at others, put them in some kind of category, and then think to ourselves, those people are all the same. And I ask you, listen to those prejudices, hear them understand how they are impacting your ability to assess and to interact with individuals. It's a case of 
recognizing your your own limitations and reminding yourself that those people are not all the same, even if they look the same to you, even if they sound the same to you, even if they dress the same to you. Those people are individuals and that your job as a responsible human being is to remind yourself that they're not all the same. They are unique individuals. And if you're trying to manage your prejudices, one way that you can do it is to remind yourself to learn about the individual, ask the person questions about themselves, to assess each person as a unique entity. It sounds very much that this is something that should happen in every school. In every school, in every in every profession, it's natural for doctors to place people into categories and to treat them all the same. Police officers do it all the time. And in fact, frankly, I have been trying to get into the police departments and have been told that my services aren't needed because they don't have a problem. It certainly should be with teachers, young people. Everyone should have a certain kind of training to help them recognize that this is part of the human condition. We all are prejudiced, and the best that we can do is recognize it in oneself and learn how to manage it. Are, are we are we prejudiced because there is a sense that it means I'm better than someone else, that it's an egocentrism, it helps define my ego and my sense of self? I think, yes, part of it is the desire to feel superior to others. There's no surprise, I think, that people who are lacking in self-confidence or lack kind of a pride in who they are are more likely to be prejudiced because they're, they're trying, they're struggling to at least feel better or superior to someone else. The other thing that I don't know, perhaps is even more difficult to fight is that people don't want to give up power. They don't want to give up resources. They don't want to give up money. They don't want to give up their position in society. Say that somebody has a position of privilege. I earn money well. I have a good job. I live in a nice neighborhood. My kids go to a good school. I don't want to give that up to somebody else. That's how people interact with the world. And so it's easier to say, well, those people don't deserve what I have because they don't work hard enough. They're not smart enough. They're something, something. It is blame the victim, and it makes people feel comfortable with inequities in society. The reason I have more than the other guy is at some, at some level, I'm convincing myself that I deserve it and they don't. And that makes it easier for people to live with themselves rather than thinking, the reason I have more than that other guy is just simply I was born into it, or frankly, I have white skin, and this is an inequitable society that gives me privileges that that, that other person can't have. That is a dip, difficult thing to live with. To the flip side, the person who the prejudice is aimed at, what does it do to them? Well, it's so damaging and enraging. And when I, I run classes and I get people to talk to each other and listen to one another about prejudice, I don't know how certain groups of people live without feeling rage all the time. People tell me all the time that they're stopped in the street, that people assuming that assuming that they're stealing. Even the most honest, the most hardworking, the most kind people are treated terribly because of the color of their skin or because of their accent or because of their religion or because of the way they dress or something, something about them. The rest of the world is prejudging that individual based on how they look, based on how they talk, based on the color of their skin, based on how much money they have. And those that are the object of prejudice, it is a very, very difficult, it's a difficult life. I do remember the civil rights movement. 
and how it seemed to have brought this to the surface, and then for a while things got considerably better. But the problems still exist, at least in our society. Has it changed much? And as you said, it, it's a human propensity, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Do you think it ever will be changeable, or is it something that, something that needs to be fixed with each new generation? I think that it does have to be fixed with each new generation. Part of it is simply having policies in place that protect minorities or protect groups of people who can be subject to prejudice. And again, what I'm talking about are racial minorities, ethnic minorities, religious groups, even people, body types. People tell me that if you're too overweight or you're too skinny or there's, if you look funny or different in a particular way, people will be prejudiced against you. Or it might be people who have accents or people that have handicaps. There are a number of people that are treated badly simply because of how they look or how they dress or how much money they have or how they speak or something, something, something. And because I think it's, as I've said, it's, it's a natural human tendency to prejudge others based on all of these categories. I think it should be taught. I think it should be taught in schools. Children have to be taught to be tolerant and to be accepting and to judge others based on the individual characteristics, not the groups that they belong to. So for some people, it sounds like what you're saying, if I am interpreting it correctly, that they are actually comfortable. They feel safer. They feel as if they have better boundaries if they maintain their prejudice. Am I saying that correctly? You are absolutely correct. People do want those boundaries, especially those that benefit from it. There are people in society that benefit from discrimination, that benefit from, from prejudices because they have positions of privilege. I've tried to be careful not using that because, because it makes people kind of angry or unhappy for me to assert that they are in the position that they are in because they have been privileged in society. Sometimes people don't want to hear that or they don't want to believe it, but the world is not an even playing field. No, it's not. In preparation for this talk with you, I found that in 1970, the U.S. House of Representatives had a hearing on discrimination against women. And one of the ladies testifying, her name was Bernice Sandler, used the term socially acceptable prejudice. <laughs> That bothered me. But yes. it's the sort of thing that we need occasionally to project so that people will look at themselves. Your thoughts on the ridicule, the degradation, the indifference, it's very complex. It's very complex. And I think if it's there's sort of a feeling, well, if it doesn't affect me, or in fact, I am benefiting from it, why should I do something? And it may not be that conscious. It's more unconscious. In fact, my sense is that, at least in the work that I do, I don't come across very many people who are intentionally prejudiced or who intentionally discriminate others. Most people don't want to be prejudiced. And I say that that has a lot to do with a positive way of direction that our society has gone in since the civil rights That's movement. That's reassuring. Most of what I'm talking about is something implicit or un. Unconscious. You know, there are some really good tests like the implicit association test is a test, uh, an online test that people can go to that started by folks at Harvard and another university. It basically shows that people have unconscious preferences, unconscious biases or prejudices against others. There are some other really good studies, a very good study where researchers took the same CV, the exact same resume or CV and send it out. The only difference was, is that it was Emily and Bob and Lakeisha and Jamal, traditionally white names and traditionally African-American names. 
And no surprise, who got the callbacks? Who got the invitations to come in for a job interview? Much more frequently, it was the people that had the white-sounding names rather than the African-American-sounding names that got the callbacks for exactly the same resume. I hear these stories so frequently, and it's frightening. When you do have these classes that you teach, how successful are you? The best that I can do when I can get a hold of somebody for a few hours and have them in a room, and my classes are very interactive, I get people to listen to one another about these topics, is that at least I can raise awareness. And the most important thing that I want to do when I get people in my class is for them to recognize something in themselves. I think of it as like a 12-step program. Hello, my name is Gail, and I'm prejudiced. It's the same as saying, hello, my name is Gail, and I'm an alcoholic. Because once you embrace that about yourself and embrace it each and every day, then you can get some power over it. You can get some power over your own behavior, how you treat others, how you interact with other people in your lives, and you can begin to behave in a way that's more just. And that's that's the goal that I have in my classes just make people become quiet and still and give some serious thoughts to themselves. Gail Price Wise is president of the Florida Center for Cultural Competence. I was looking for your website. It's www.culturalcompetence.center. Thank you so much for doing this. It is so timely and so critical. And I guess the fact that even I feel a little pain in hearing you talk about it suggests that it is something that from pain we do grow. Thank you very much. You're welcome.